Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this afternoon, we're going to turn in God's word to that great letter of the Apostle Paul, the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verses 939 in your pew Bible. And the outline to the sermon you'll find on the back of your sermon bulletin if you would like to follow along. Now I want to focus particularly on verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now we know from reading chapter 1, how Paul has wanted to come to Rome to preach the gospel. And we learn later in chapter 15 that his plan is to establish Rome as a base of operations, as it were, as he had in Syrian Antioch. So they might preach the gospel in Spain and the western Mediterranean, in places where others had not yet traveled. And we know from the Acts of the Apostles and Paul's other letters, how there is this continuing pastoral problem between believers who had been Jews and believers who had been Gentiles. And so, quite rightly, he anticipates a problem of division that could hinder his goal of proclaiming Christ crucified and resurrected in the West. So he writes his letter to explain fully the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we learn an important principle from Paul in his writing in this way. If there is a pastoral problem in a local church, Paul's analysis is that there is a failure to understand the gospel or a portion of the gospel itself has been forgotten. And my dear friends, we must never forget this. When the object or the goal of your Christian life has moved from something more that then you may know Jesus Christ and share in union with him, you have forgotten the very gospel that saves you. Like an error in the trajectory of a launch. It may seem minor at the start, but over the distance will take you so far from the object. So if we get these two verses wrong, then our method and our message in evangelism will go wrong. So we must pay close attention as Paul sets to his work. He has just told the Romans that he is eager to preach the gospel to them. And in his next two sentences 
are this densely packed summary of his gospel that marks the themes of his letter to the Romans. And we can see that there are five hallmarks. A hallmark is a die struck into a work of precious metal, usually silver or gold, that confirms its purity. It confirms the craftsman and the place and year it was made. And so it does us well, my dear friends, for us to look at these hallmarks tonight. The first, in verse 16, it is offensive to the perishing. The gospel is offensive to the perishing. For Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He begins with another statement. I am not ashamed. Now, why would he begin this way? He tells the Romans this. Because all believers are tempted by shame. When the gospel is preached. He tells them this because there will be opposition. There will be ridicule. And Paul has known this autobiographically, hasn't he? When he preached the gospel in Athens in Acts chapter 17. The hearers asked, the Stoics and the Epicureans in the marketplace asked, What does this babbler say? And he is ridiculed. He writes to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. You see, there it is, the gospel. And he writes in the same letter of the disciple Onesiphorus, who above all others had not abandoned Paul and was not ashamed of his chains. And the gospels themselves, our Lord also warns us against being ashamed of him. And his words. So we can see how this is such a temptation for every believer. I think we can go so far as to say that if you have never been tempted in this way, your gospel message isn't clear. Why? Because Paul tells us the world ridicules the gospel. And we do not like being ridiculed. Paul tells us here in Romans 1 that it is the message of the gospel itself that triggers this reaction. It is foolishness to them. The gospel of Jesus Christ is always offensive to the unbeliever because he has deliberately suppressed the truth of God. When we begin to be ashamed of the gospel, my dear friends, when we slide from declaration of to an accommodation to the unbelieving mind, we have lost sight of the object of the gospel power to save the sinner. The gospel is no longer in view. Always remember that it is facts we tell, not points of view. That doesn't mean we are to be insensitive, but we must be clear on the facts. Our evangelism is not, what are your needs, my dear friend? Jesus can fill them. That's an accommodation to the fallen mind that suppresses the truth. Our evangelism is simply this. Here are the facts of the gospel. Secondly, Paul says it is the power of God. How then did Paul 
And how shall we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? He tells us. It is by remembering the very same message ourselves. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. Notice how he says it does not bring power. It is power. It is God's power. So when the gospel is preached, it is simply not so many words being said, but is the power of God himself at work. And as Christians believers, we need to remind ourselves continually because our sinfulness always desires visible acts of power over invisible recreation in the dead sinner's heart of God's powerful grace. God's invisible recreation that brings the spiritually dead to life and opens their blind eyes is the very same power that caused light out of darkness in the creation of the universe. When the gospel enters anyone's life, that same power is at work because it is only that recreating power that can regenerate those who lay dead in trespasses and sins, that can stop the rebel in his tracks and to cause us all to fall on our knees before him. You see, the power of God for salvation takes billions upon billions of discrete events across history to bring about the fact that you, my dear friend, heard and understood the good news that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again on the third day. So the gospel is offensive to the lost. It is the power of God for salvation and the third hallmark, it is for everyone. The next hallmark of the gospel of God is its uniqueness. It is universal in its effect. The gospel of God works everywhere. I want you to pause to consider that very fact, the wonder of it. The gospel works everywhere. Contrast that fact with the effort it takes to form a culture that will receive representative democracy. I mean, how many years have our troops and our wealth and education and restoration and training and diplomacy and banking and international trade poured into countries like Iraq and Afghanistan to stabilize these countries, we hope, and these cultures to such an extent that modern democracy would take root and grow? But not the gospel of God. It's the power of God to everyone who believes. Now, many of us are gray-bearded or gray-haired enough to remember the fall of the Shah of Iran and the return of the Mullah Ayatollah Khomeini. Well, the Islamic Revolution is 35 years old now with no end in sight because the time is not yet right in that culture for true Islam to flourish but not the gospel of God. If you want visible proof of the power of God for salvation, then look to this uniqueness. There is not one culture, 
time, tribe, or language on this earth where the gospel cannot immediately take root and grow. No earthly power can stop it. No force can suppress it. And that is precisely Paul's point in Romans 9 through 11. That God moves through history, raising up kings and emperors and laying them low like dried autumn leaves. Every moment the gospel is rejected, my dear friends, in that same moment it is accepted by another. For history is the lens of the glory of God, the power of God for salvation. And so the gospel came to the Gentiles. The gospel came to you and me. The fourth hallmark, it reveals God's righteousness. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. How are we to understand this? What does Paul mean by God's righteousness? Well, we have to remember we're at the beginning of his letter. So we must look forward into the letter and then backward to understand where we are. First, in Romans, he speaks of God's personal righteousness is supremely seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. To what I think is the most important paragraph in the Bible, Romans 3. Verses 21 to 26. It's 941, just a few pages away. There you see it. That wonderful but God. When God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Speaking of Christ on the cross. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness. And in order that he might be both himself just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So throughout Romans, Paul is at pains to defend the righteous character and behavior of God. Second, the righteousness of God is his unique action. What I mean there is, is his saving work for you and me. This understanding of God's righteousness is seen very often in the word salvation used in the Old Testament. This is God's righteousness, his loyalty to his covenant people, and it's the very righteousness that we understand when we pray, when we ask and expect through faith that God will come to the salvation of his people. And the third way is the righteousness of God in the gospel is his achievement. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul describes God's righteousness as God's character and as its activity, but also he makes it clear how our righteousness will never match his righteousness. So he must be the source of our righteousness. You see it in Philippians 3.9. It's on page 981. This is what it says. And this righteousness found in him, Jesus Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now notice how he's doing this here, this context and this contrast. He sets out 
the righteous status of God requires that if we are ever to stand before him, that he achieves his atoning sacrifice on the cross for us, he reveals it in the gospel and gives to anyone who trusts in Christ. And then he contrasts all that work of God's achieving with our own righteousness, which we are tempted to establish instead of submitting to God's righteousness. So when Paul writes here of the righteousness of God, he has all three of these in mind. And notice how he joins faith to this. From faith, for faith. Now how are we to take the meaning of faith here? Well, Paul is emphasizing in what he's just written of God's righteousness that there is a place for faith or faith first to last. In other words, the righteousness of God is given to us as a gift as we trust in him. And Paul reminds us of this over and over again in Romans. That we must first acknowledge our insufficiency. That we can do nothing to make ourselves righteous before God. Instead, we must totally trust, throw ourselves upon his sufficiency and his righteous achievement on our behalf, and have that imputed to us through Christ's death and resurrection. And the fifth hallmark and the final one is how it's confirmed by the scriptures. As it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul wants to assert here how his gospel is no new doctrine, but it has always been the teaching of the scriptures. He therefore reasserts that the one who has God's righteousness imputed to them through faith in Jesus Christ remains in faith. And to prove that, he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And whenever Paul uses an Old Testament quotation... We must always keep in mind that he's bringing the entire context of that passage into his purpose in quoting it. So if we turn to Habakkuk 2, we find how Habakkuk laments before God how God intended to raise up the Babylonians to punish Israel. And he asked the question, how could God use the wicked to judge the wicked? And Habakkuk is told that the Babylonians will fall. But the righteous Israelite would live by faith. That is, the righteous believer lives by his humble, steadfast trust in God. We keep a steadfast trust in the object of our faith. Why do we do this? Because scripture tells us that God's righteousness one day ultimately will be vindicated and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where is that found? Habakkuk chapter 2. That's where Paul's taking us. That we go trusting in faith, knowing that that faith will be vindicated on the last day. This is a peak, isn't it, of Romans chapter 8, where Paul asserts that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
We can see, can't we, in all of this, how sound biblical teaching is so very practical for the believing Christian. Particularly so today, when we live in a period of declension in God's church and the abandonment of biblical teaching. We live in a world today where we can have religious leaders define the contest of the present time not between truth and faults, but rather between love and fear. We stand for the truth of the gospel. That is why All Souls Anglican Church exists. And we know that we will be ridiculed by those who reject it. That friendships will end. We'll be accused of fear-mongering when we assert it. But yet we take heart, for we know it is the power of God at work for our saving. That we all here, believers, are instruments in his hands to work to his purpose and to bring him glory. We can thrill with every thrill as we witness God's power of creation open once again the blind eyes of another sinner, just like you and me. And we can rejoice with the angels that another has come to repentance and faith. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone. Our dearest relation, our worst enemy, anyone can fall under the unrelenting call of God's grace. What a comfort that is, my dear friends. What a peace that brings to us that we are the ones who see God's righteousness revealed with every story of every new birth from every corner of the globe and from every corner of a human heart. And we have a curb on our pride as we recall how we ourselves once were enemies of God. But now we are sons and daughters of God, righteous in Christ's righteousness. And so what a thrill it is to suffer for the sake of the gospel. For when it comes, it means that you and I are sufficient enough like our Savior Jesus Christ that you suffer like the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we search the scriptures, we find this has always been so, that God keeps his oath, that his righteousness will be revealed, his glory will cover the earth. And that is our goal. At All Souls Anglican Church, our goal is simple and it is absolute. We must preach Christ crucified. We must preach Christ raised and ascended all for the glory of God. We must stand for the truth. Because to abandon the truth is to ensure our own spiritual suicide. For we throw out the very foundation upon which we ourselves are saved. Will this mission succeed? Will we achieve success in human eyes? But my dear friends, we have already 
succeeded. We are more than conquerors. We have come out of the unclean thing. The gospel is proclaimed. And holy hands are lifted up. And we are still here. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the email newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple church, ancient truth, real people, new life.